What does it take to create a vibrant, thriving life? First, the sad news is that Thoreau was right. Most people are leading quiet lives of desperation, lacking in meaning, fulfillment, and vitality. But we choose more. We choose to create extraordinary lives. And the Art of Vibrant Living show entertains you with inspiration, empowerment, and education to create your life into a masterpiece. It's time. Let's vibe up. Aloha, y'all. Thank you for joining. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Daniel Aaron. Really excited about this particular show. You, If you've been with us at all, awesome. If you're new, welcome. This show is all about empowering you to live a vibrant, thriving life with the premise that it's not an accident. Most people don't just stumble into great levels of success and happiness. It takes some learning. It takes some practice. It takes intention. So what we do here is give you inspiration and education so that you can thrive in your life, thus contributing to a better and better world. And today's show, I'm really excited about, um, while I often have guests on who are entrepreneurs, Dr. Elizabeth Adams and I met through a really beautiful, powerful community. You could call it a coaching community. And she is a leader in the UK mental health system. And she's doing such powerful and interesting work that personally for me resonated on a deep level because she's working directly with uh, people that are on the, the hot seat on the edge of suicide. And for me personally, having my own sister commit suicide many years ago, it's a topic that not only has been important and dear to my heart, it's part of what motivated me to become a, an author and a coach and a teacher. So Elizabeth is doing phenomenal work. It's little known the kind of work she's doing and the impact it's having. And even better, what she's going to share is stuff that you can use in your life and with people that you care about as well. So I could say more, but let's hear directly from Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us. What an honor to have you here. Lovely to be here. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Uh, total pleasure. I'm just so excited. And, you know, as we spoke about before from the first time we met, um, it's just really important, right? And one of the biggest challenges to mental health is a lot of what goes on in our heads and in our sometimes in our homes stays in the dark, right? And it stays in this place where we don't talk about it, we don't look at it, and anything that's deep in the closet gains power. So to be able to bring this forward and out into a public conversation and with your experience, um, it's, it's just an incredible gift. So before we really dive into you know, wh what you're doing and how you're working, would you say a little bit about how you got here? Absolutely. Yes. So I'm Elizabeth Adams. I've been a doctor for 30 years and actually I came to this uh, coaching area um, because I had such a really difficult time at work a few years ago. So four or five years ago, I was falsely accused of some clinical issues and actually lost my job and nearly lost my career as a doctor. And during that time, um, obviously, I was in a really dark place myself with anxiety and depression. And I met a coach who I'd met previously and actually she, you know, coached me. And what I learned was these practical tips, which what I realized when I went into my leadership role, which is in primary care in Somerset, um, that actually I could use those with patients. And I, I'd previously actually done quite a lot of relationship counseling. So I'd been a relationship counselor before but actually the coaching that that you know you and other coaches provide i realized i could actually use that with really acutely mentally unwell patients who were coming to the surgery either tele mainly telephoning but telephoning us or coming to reception 
but actually saying, you know, today I feel suicidal. In some cases, obviously, you'll know that they actually have been feeling like that for quite a long time, but that's the day. And and I felt, well, initially I felt really scared, to be honest. And And I think that the first time I got a phone call to say, you know, this acutely suicidal patient, you know, is at reception or is on the phone, can you ring them back? I think my big fear probably, along with many other people's, would be what if I say the wrong thing? You know, what if I don't stop them from committing suicide? Um, what if I'm not the right person? And actually, I think one of the things we're going to talk about is how anyone can, can you know, help someone in that situation. And so I've used my own experience and what I practice every day to stay mentally really well and I suppose filtered that down into about four or five points that I can help someone with in 30 minutes so it's a quick very acute situation um, and and I you know and I I feel privileged that suddenly I'm the one, you know, that they've contacted that day. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, thank you for sharing all that. And there's so much in what you said. Uh, we could talk for two hours just about some of the important points that you brought forward there. Uh, I, I will sort of reflect or highlight a couple and then uh, ask you another question so we can go a bit deeper. Um, I appreciate your vulnerability in saying, I was in this rough spot, right? I was falsely accused. I almost lost my job. It was stressful for me. I was, you know, feeling anxiety. And, um, you know, part of what I get from that is what I think of as a general therapeutic truism, which applies equally well to coaching. And, and maybe at some point we'll talk about the difference between coaching and therapy and, and you know, what differences and similarities there are. But one of the, the truism that I find to be really powerful in both fields is you can't take anybody deeper than you've been yourself, right? Mm. So you're, you know, and you have certifications and qualifications, obviously, as a coach and a doctor. But I would say maybe even the more important certification is the fact that that you went to some dark places yourself and you learned how to move through them and become healthy and vibrant again right does that make sense yes 100 percent. yeah yes and and actually i i do share that i mean I'm, obviously i'm sharing it with your um viewers but um i share that commonly with patients because i think when i start to describe the things that they can do practical so how i describe it as is as mental health first aid that I'm offering them um, as a support. And I mean, it is good that I, in some ways that I'm a doctor because, you know, that gets um, us on a really good footing to start with, you know, in terms of they've, they've come to the practice to get help. And, um, you know, that I have their permission, you know, they're re reaching out for help. Um, at that moment um, but so I offer the mental health first aid effectively and I think that sharing my own story because some of what I described to them seems initially as if it doesn't necessarily make sense although it makes a lot of sense from the way that every human being's brains work um, but I think by sharing my story it means that they they realize that I've actually been there and I practice the things that I'm talking about. So I always say I'm not sm blowing smoke up their bottom. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and, and you know, I think um, we all have bullshit meters and those who have struggled and been down often have more uh, acutely aware bullshit meters. Hmm. I, I remember one of my, I'll, so I'll divert for a moment into a tangent. One of my teachers years ago, who was considered by some a guru, he ran an addiction recovery center. And this is a guy who 
had been strung out on heroin for 14 years and he had tried, right? And that's really unusual, right? And you know, but for those who don't know, most people, if you're strung out on heroin, you don't last 14 years. You either get clean or you get dead. Um, and so he managed to, strong character. I mean, it's 14 years in and out of those that addiction. And what finally made the difference for him is he went to an addiction recovery center in New York City that was experimental at the time called the Phoenix House. And it was run by former addicts, addicts who had got clean. And he said the only reason that that finally worked for him, because he'd been through so many different uh, centers and programs, is there the people that were running the program, they knew all, all his stories, all his games, right? And when when they called him out on something, he couldn't he couldn't come up with, oh, you don't know because it's not, you've never had this problem. They're like, no, I, I've been there. It's real. And it, so I love that you, you know, you you have that authenticity and that experience that you bring to it. And one other thing I want to highlight from what you said before, before we go on to what you um, just got into, like wh what you do say and how you work with people. Um, it's also just so cool, impressive, and uh, amazing that you approach this as it's a gift. It's a privilege that I get to work with these people. And and I heard you also say that when you started, it was you, you, you had some fear, like, you know, what if I say the wrong thing? What if, what if I, you know, I'm not effective in this? And there's so many times in life, and we all do this to some degree or another, where we think, oh, I want to help. I want to be of service. I want to give this. And then fear kicks in and it stops us, right? So for you to have cultivated enough caring desire to help that that outweighs the fear, and you know, and I'm sure it's not the case that there isn't any fear. It's just that the desire to be of service is greater that's you know such a beautiful thing and a great lesson for all of us because we all have the capability of you know increasing the caring which maybe that doesn't decrease the fear but it changes how we act and it changes the world mm, yes and i think the way this well i had trust anyway in the coaching process and i and i think in what i remembered um one of my coaches saying to me was you know, don't worry when you you do have fear about what to say or do, just tune into your love and compassion. So tune into being love and compassion and and then just actually, and that's how I prepare for seeing one of these patients. When they come in, I'm just breathing myself, you know, relaxing and being prepared to really, really deeply listen to what they've got to say from a place of love and compassion and no judgment. And, and that way, that overcomes any fear that I have of, and, and obviously as time's gone on, you know, I've, 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 I think I've seen about 200 patients since I started and um, I audited my results and, I'm getting about a 70% improvement rate after one session. So actually, <laughs> so which is great. And um, and I think I was explaining to you before we came on air how I, so I have 30 minutes really. I mean, there's a little bit of leeway, but effectively 30 minutes to spend with them. And then I follow them up with some text messaging, which we have um, as an, a semi-automated system through the computer and normally I normally mainly see patients for either one or two sessions and that's enough to shift them um, either away from that acutely distressed state that they've come in to a different path you know where they um, you know they can start to read and they can start to look at things on YouTube and, and start to see other possibilities for, you know, how they, how they're going to move forward really. Wow. Okay. So I got to ask now 70% success rate. 
How, how is that measured? What does that mean? So what I looked at was um, I, I followed up all the patients that I saw in the first tranche. And um, I think out of, so basically, um, I can't remember all the figures offhand now, but 70% um, of the first 100 were uh, got it back in touch and said they were now fine. Wow. That's, yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah, 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 it was good, actually. And and they are obviously a mixture of people who are maybe also on medication. Mm. And um, they're, they're also a group of patients who I think I was also explaining to you that our crisis team in the UK can't pick them up for three weeks. So after three weeks, they may be picked up as well by sort of mainstream mental health services as well. So, and I, I say to them, just, you know, have as much help at this point as you need, you know, mm. see, see, I'm not someone who would say, oh, don't come and see me because you're seeing a psychiatrist or don't come and see me because you're on medication now or something, you know, basically they, they can come and see me, um, you know, whenever they need to. Which is um, amazing, and it's such a contrast to the way the mental health system in the U.S. often works. And I think not – it doesn't – the way it often works is the opposite of what you described in that um, practitioners of various sorts say, oh, no, don't see me. You have to go here. You go over – you know, mm -hmm. it becomes sort of this bouncing back which you know, I don't think is because these people don't care or that not that they don't want to help. It's just that we've created this very convoluted system that revolves so much around procedures and money and all of that. Mm -hmm. So for you to be in a place where you're saying you're welcome, come, you know, make sure that you use me. That's you know, which of course on some levels, like, well, that's how it should be. Um, but let's check in because I want to make sure we're understanding you when you say uh, the mental health crisis team can't pick people up for three weeks. Is, did I hear you right yeah. with that? If so, what does that mean? Yeah. So the waiting time um, at the moment in my area of the UK is that when we make a referral to the crisis team of someone who's acutely suicidal, they can't see them for three weeks. So in the meantime, it becomes even more important. Um, I mean, obviously, we also safety net them with, um, you know, all the different um, the lines. You know, what in the UK it's one one one, which is non urgent medical care, and nine nine nine, which is urgent medical care. And then there are also obviously all the charities. So there's something called Mindline. Um, there's the Samaritans. Um, so they, they, there are also all these call center um, ways that they can get help um, sort of out of hours. What they do say to me is the problem, Mindline is good because they can actually have 30 minutes a day hmm. with a counselor and they, they can book that. Um, but they always have to speak to a different person, obviously. So I think one of the things about trying to look after the patients that belong to our practice like this is that they, you know, I, I know who they are and, um, you know, they don't have to keep repeating the whole story again, which is, which I remember from my own time was whenever I met a new person who was supporting me um, when I was having my difficult dark time, um, to have to start from scratch and go through my sorry tale again. Um, you know, not only did it sort of make it worse because I was reliving it each time, but, you know, it used up all the time I could have, um, you know, with that person for their support because there was so much time telling my, my story. Yeah, well, and I think part of what that points to is something we were speaking a little, a little bit about earlier, which I want to highlight also. 
I was appreciating your courage and caring that outweighing the fear. And, and part of what you said is something you learned that's become important is to make sure you get yourself in the place of compassionate, compassionate listening that you're caring, right? Which points to the principle that love, we'll call it compassion, that's love and fear, they, they, they don't coexist, right? You know, they have an inverse relationship. And one thing that, that I firmly believe, again, both in coaching and in therapy, is that while there, there are many aspects that contribute to the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness in, in terms of that helping relationship, caring is clearly one of the most vital aspects of it, right? And some of us in the coaching world say, well, really, all I'm doing is loving people. Right. And it sounds it sounds a little trite or overly simplistic. And, and it is overly simplistic. There's more to it than that. Um, and the, the truth is that loving someone is a multi-layered skill action. Um, so and, and part of why that comes to mind for me again now is you describe, well, your ability to see people repeatedly um, helps to convey that caring. And and well, of course, anybody you know, somebody could call in and reach a different person, a uh, different helping person every time and each of them be caring, but it's harder to feel that and know that when it's like a different person every time. And, you know, mm -hmm. that they're just there on the other end, um, you, you get to develop a, a bit of a relationship with someone. Yes. Yeah. And obviously um, the one, the patients as I see, you know, more than once or a few times, you know, you can build on the stepping stones um, of what you've put in place at the beginning um, so that they, you know, they're, they're starting to move forward um, actually down a, a what you know, we would call a coaching path um, of self-development. Um, and I, I think one of the things as well, um, one of the things that's important to convey um, when I'm meeting them for the first time is to um, is to see for me to you know calm myself and come from love and compassion and also to be able to see in them immediately whatever state they're in that they have innate wellness and resilience within them they have mental health within them I'm not I'm not seeing them as someone that I need to fix you know, I'm not rescuing them. They, you know, I'm seeing them as a, a person who has their, their, they have the ability to find their own well-being, you know, and our job as coaches is, is to just signpost them that way. Yeah, beautiful. Well, and that conveys a level of respect and empowerment that is so vital to somebody's journey. So, well, okay, now that you've spoken about that a little bit, we might as well say, um, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this question up a little bit because I, I want to hear your take on this. I mentioned earlier that you know, there may be some distinction between therapy and coaching. I get that question a lot. And prior to our meeting, and part of why I was so enthralled about what you're doing is I had this belief that if somebody's dysfunctional and we could say suicidal is like, you know, the, the extreme of dysfunctional, um, that for them to go from dysfunctional to functional, that's the world of therapy, right? And that coaching begins when somebody gets to functional and coaching is about going from functional to extraordinary. And this is mirrored a little bit by the history of psychology because we had all this work over many years to say, okay, somebody that's not quite doing okay in life, we've got psychology and they can go from here to here. And then, gosh, now I think it's 30 years ago, we started with positive psychology, which says, okay, well, what about the people that are doing all right? How do we help them go further? So I had this belief that, well, if somebody's suicidal, they're not a candidate for coaching. They, they need therapy, though you turned that on its head for me. And I saw, well, maybe there's no valid distinction here. And so 
what that leads to for me, and of course, say anything you want about what I just said, but but also, I think really valid and useful for you to tell us a bit. How do you do that? I mean, because it's kind of miraculous that you can spend half an hour with someone who's at the extreme of dysfunctional on the edge of suicide and bring them forward to the point that they're sending you a text and saying, yeah, I'm doing all right. Mm. Yes. I mean, actually, I mean, you know, I can't take credit for the, you know, this all comes from what we call the three principles and, um, you know, so the background to what I've studied and I've been coached in um, are really principles how I describe it to the to my patients of how our brains work so our brains work in this way so just to give you the synopsis really and I mean I do recommend that anyone could do this any coach and any person and um, and it does just you know take coming from love and compassion and listening really but so the the first thing I do is prepare myself and breathe and come from love and compassion and be prepared to listen deeply to them. And when they come in, you know, I explain how how long we have roughly. And whatever state they're in, I just ask them to tell me what's happening in their lives. So they tell me their story of what's going on, if they can. I mean, sometimes they're not really speaking at this point. And if they aren't speaking or once their initial, um, you know, talking about their distress, you know, has, has subsided, then I just offer them five pieces of what I'm calling first aid. So I'm saying what I can offer you is some mental health first aid that I do every day and that has helped me. And it seems to help lots of other people. Um, and it, and it, it does sound simple, but you do actually need to practice it a little bit. So the first thing I talk to them about, and sometimes I show them how to do it if I have time, but otherwise... I just suggest that they practice it and start using an app or, um, you know, actually just sit is for them to just learn how to empty their minds by breathing. So we talk about breathing. And I did have a chap who was a Buddhist and he said, well, what type of breathing am I meant to do? And I said, honestly, it doesn't matter. Any, any type of breathing is fine. So the first thing is for them to practice breathing and then trying to empty their mind of all the negative thoughts. Um, because I think I was saying to you before we went on, what I do find is that most of the patients who come in acutely are living in a really, really horrible thought storm of negative thoughts about themselves, their life, and really horrible negative messages that they're that they've internalized in their life. So they I get them to breathe and empty their mind and clear their mind of the negative thoughts so that they have a sort of blank sheet of paper to start working from. And then I explain to them that their brain produces all their thoughts constantly. Um, in the, and they aren't their thoughts. So they, their personality or energy or whatever you want to call it is the observer of their thoughts. And actually a lot of them have never thought, understood that before. So they believe that they are their thoughts. So we talk about that a little bit. And I, once they can empty their mind, I get them to start to practice over the next few days and weeks starting to observe their thoughts but particularly the very first negative thought that they have and often they wake up what they tell me is that they wake up with that first negative thought the moment they wake up so we talk about how their brain is producing all these thoughts positive thoughts negative thoughts and random thoughts and we work on them 
starting to observe the first negative thought. And I don't ask them, unlike positive psychology, I don't ask them to try and move that negative thought to a positive thought. Um, I just say, see if you can find something completely neutral in your environment, a cup, a lamp, a tree, anything that you can move that thought to. So observe it, see if you can move it to a neutral. And then I talk to them about how um, their thoughts create how they feel. And so they start to think about or process that their thoughts are leading to their emotions. And then the final bit, which is when actually it takes a few, it takes a few minutes to, is the biggie really, which is that we are all through our thoughts and our emotions creating our experience in every moment. And that's, you know, a big coaching concept from the three principles from Sid Banks, from Steve Hardison and so forth. And that is a massive um, thing for anyone to take on board in, you know, especially in a difficult situation. So the way I tend to explain that, I, I tell them, you know, that's how it works and that's how your brain works and how we're all, you know, living through the filter, the, the lens of our thoughts and experiences. But how I describe it to them is, okay, you and I are going to go to the cinema and um, I ask them if they like horror films. And um, I mean, actually, interestingly, there's probably a higher proportion of people who come to see me who do like horror films. <laughs> I don't know how relevant that is. But anyway, and I say, we're going to go and sit in the dark together and we're going to watch a horror film. And, you know, if it, there was an alien looking at us, they would think that we were sitting in the cinema having exactly the same experience. But in fact, you and I know that if we went and sat in the cinema and watched a film together, we would have completely different experiences, you know, especially because I really hate horror films. <laughs> so we usually have a bit of a laugh at that point. And, um, and I sort of say, well, I would come out and say that was the worst film I ever saw. And you would come out probably and say that was the best thing you ever saw. And, and, and that just is a bit more accessible for them to see that they, that I'm creating my experience and they're creating their experience. And, and once that's the sort of aha moment normally, um, and, uh, you know, and it doesn't always, I mean, it doesn't, I don't want to say it lands every time, but it, if when people are receptive in this acute, even in this acutely mentally unwell state, um, it is true that they are only one thought away from feeling better. And that's what I see is that, you know, I can, in 30 minutes, I can give them a few pointers which are, which are going to fundamentally change how they feel in that moment. And it seems, you know, for longer than that. Um, and, and then obviously I give them some reading. I've put in the chat um, so that for later some you know, I send them away with some reading and some YouTube videos and things like that that they can then look at, and also my contact details. Um, so, you know, that's the that's the nub of it. Well, that's awesome, and I'm going to actually, since you mentioned it, I'm going to put in our comments right now those recommendations that you give. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, part of what I love about what you're saying here is, well, I mean, there's a few things here. One, I think worth saying is you are able to give some practical advice, some tools, help people to 
one, have a greater understanding of how reality works, how their brain works, and give them some things that they can do on their own to further that understanding, right? That's part of what the observation is. And then practical steps for how they can actually feel better. And, uh, and I'm sure you know well, one of the principles that we're always contending with any of us, if we're going from dysfunctional to functional, is what Martin Seligman called learned helplessness, right? Mm -hmm. So, so many people that are suicidal and maybe all on some level, part of the reason for that is we, we've had some belief. And, and I say we, because we've, we've all had despairing thoughts, you know, and we're not different than anybody. It's just, it's just the, the situation, the, the, the degree of it or the duration of it. But any of us in those despairing moments, we, we've had this thought that I can't do anything about this, right? Mm -hmm. It's beyond my control. And, and I think part of what, part of why it's so effective that in a half an hour, you can give them a practical understanding of their mind, how reality is created and practical things to do. Part of that is again, because of the love and compassion you bring to it. And, and I'm saying this also because part of what I know we both want to do here is empower more people to be effective in working with whether it's somebody who's suicidal or our friend or ourself, or, you know, just, we all want to help those people around us. And one of the keys that you, you didn't say this, but I'm highlighting it now though, is you can do all of that in part because you're not judging them, right? Mm -hmm. You're not condemning them. You're not saying, oh, you're not, you're not saying poor you, uh, you know, you're, that's so rough that you've had all of this. And, you know, you might uh, un, uh, have express compassion, but you're also empowering them and doing it in a way that respects them. And that's such a key component of this. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, and I have talked to um, several, you know, other um, you know, we're on this ultimate coach group together and I've talked to some other people um, about the same thing and, um, you know, actually the not judging and not, I mean, I think the important bit is, yeah, not judging really, listening, not judging and, um, and not saying that they're wrong to feel how they feel um, and that, and not bringing, really importantly, not bringing my own emotions or my own thoughts to it, actually. Just letting them, um, just seeing them as, as being innately absolutely fine and human and that they have everything within them that they need. Um, and I'm just sort of pointing them in the direction, in a way, of how to access that. Um, because I think, you know, and when I talk to a few people, you know, the what you the way that you don't want to go is saying, oh no, you're wrong, oh you're, you know, you're just being silly or belittling, you know, their feelings because actually they're in a, a very very bad place and and they feel, they all tell me that they feel very trapped and I remember feeling like that, um, and that's the bit. And that's actually why they can't see a way out apart from death, because they're in so much pain for, you know, um, all the different reasons that people have pain. And, and they can't see a way out. And one of the other things that I explain to them is that when we're in that state of distress, our minds are working at probably 50 or 60% less well than they are when we're calm and collected and relaxed. And, and you know, when I practice, I mean, I still practice creating my day. And in fact, I create it, I create my morning, I create my afternoon and create my evening because I find creating the whole day in one go, um, you know, is, is quite tough. And, um, and so when I'm explaining to them that I do this all the time and I'm creating, you know, my experience, um, I, I can say, you know, I often use examples like the different ways I could create my day. You know, I could create my day by coming in and it's raining and it's awful and I 
hate my job and I hate all the people I work with and I, I'm going to have a horrible day and I don't want to speak to anyone. Or I can sit in my car and create, wow, it is raining, but um, I love all the people I work with. I love my job. I love my patients. Um, I'm going to have a fantastic day and I'm going to make sure I poke my nose out of the practice at lunchtime and walk around the block in the rain. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I can demonstrate to them that both of those could be true. And, you know, and I could, I'm creating my day one way and I'm creating it another way. And it's sort of just, and I think these examples, which obviously Steve Hardison is brilliant at the distinctions between things, those, those distinctions really land because um you know that that gives that's opening up in this acute setting where someone's acutely distressed that's opening up the fact that there are other possibilities so going back to the feeling trapped and no way out and i i must kill myself because i can't see any way out of this situation you know, I've lost my job, I've lost my money, I've lost my family, I'm divorced, I'm this, I'm that. Um, all of those things can be true. And when we breathe and step back and tune into, um, uh, you know, the, a, better, a better part of our brain function that's relaxed, you know, suddenly all sorts of other possibilities come through. And I think that's what I'm just trying to demonstrate to them, that, you know, this, you know, there are other ways, possibilities that you could, you could get through this situation. Beautiful. Okay. I, I, I must interject for a moment because yes. there's a couple just so uh, important things you said there. One, just for anybody in the audience, whether you're listening live or by rebroadcast here, um, Elizabeth has mentioned already, that, and I've mentioned it too, the community that we are together a part of, which is called The Ultimate Coach. And it is related to and, and somewhat derived from a man by the name of Steve Hardison, um, who is, was named by someone else, The Ultimate Coach. And he's really an extraordinary being and there is a book written about him, despite the fact that he didn't want there to be a book, which is entitled The Ultimate Coach. And, and for anyone who wants to grow in their life, it's, it's an incredible resource. And our recommendation always is always to read it or listen to it about oneself rather than a biography about this dude named Steve. And now going beyond that for a moment... Um, part of what you were speaking about there, Elizabeth, is that um, the way I interpret it anyway, and see if this makes sense to you, is part of what you're doing is helping people get a little bit of space, right? And, and the way I think of it sometimes, like I remember when I had some acute mental health challenges many years ago and went into a clinical depression one of the recommendations that came to me then was, well, you should be on medication. And this was early in the days of uh, SSRIs and Prozac. And, and I had an instinct in me like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And, and I was lucky because I knew somehow innately in my bones that what I was going through was temporary. Right. And that's one of the things that is often not the case for someone who's suicidal is it doesn't feel like this is a temporary thing. It feels like this is going to be this way forever. Um, mm. And then I have colleagues in the, the natural health world, um, whether it's coaching or yoga meditation worlds that are really against medication. And well, we know that there are alternatives to medication that can be really great, like meditation exercise can, you know, re replace and do a lot of the same work without the same ne negative consequences. At the same time, I'm not telling anybody what to do or not to do on that level. And one of the benefits that I see with medication sometimes is it's like, if we've had a lot of negative programming, we've been watching horror movies in our head our whole life. It's like we're, we're driving down the road 
in a car that has really dirty windows. And we look out through the windows and of course, everything looks dirty, grimy, and depressing. And so what, what medication can do if it's, if it's used effectively is like, well, it just clears up the windows a little bit and you can start to see, oh, maybe there's another way of looking at things. Um, and, and it sounds like that's part of what, what you do for people is provide that just through your, through your counseling, through your communion with them. Um, I, I'll play angel's advocate for a moment though, because you, you said how you were able to, you know, create your day and you say, okay, well, there's this scenario. I can look at it like this and I'm so lucky and I get to do this work and, you know, it's raining, but this, or I could create it this way that, you know, my colleagues are jerks and I don't like them and I don't like this work and it's raining and I get wet. Well, what do you say then to people that say, but my colleagues really are jerks and it really is horrible, right? That, that say, there's not two realities. This is the way it is. Does, does that make yeah. sense? I'm asking. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. So on that, um, I just, well, I think sometimes the creating of other people, um, that's not going to be in the 30, first 30 minutes. And so, I mean, actually, I don't usually, um, especially seeing patients acutely, I don't usually argue with their story. Their story is what's happening to them at the moment. And, um, you know, and that's their reality. And all I'm trying to do that day, you know, in the first meeting is to just open up possibility of, okay, you know, are there any other ways of looking at this? Are there any other thoughts that you could have? Um, you know, let's just step back from the thoughts. Um, and I sort of encourage them sometimes because they're often living in absolutely horrible messages and horrible, you know, the messages that they've had through their life from other people that they think are them and um, their self-talk is horrible and their, you know, their negative thoughts are, are horrible. They're going to horrible places in their negative thoughts. I sometimes just, the breathing and things is just to give them, what I say is give I give you permission to have a holiday from your negative thoughts. So you can decide after, you know, after you leave here, you can say, you know, I'm going to have a couple of hours off these negative thoughts. You know, if you want to, you can just step back from them and think, okay, I'm just going to think some neutral thoughts. I'm going to, or I'm not going to think any thoughts. Um, and I'm just going to let my mind freewheel um, for a bit. Um, yeah, so so I think that um, I think that in the first bit of work, it's actually just getting them to observe, and then they they actually generally come back and they and they have got got the concept of of the, the the creative process you know it sort of that comes organically once they start to realize that they create their thoughts um and um you mentioned about medication and i mean i agree with you i think that medication can be really helpful and there are a lot of different medications and for example if people aren't sleeping aren't eating and you know are in a distressed state where they're you know they can't really take anything in particularly it's quite useful for them to start some medication for a short period of time but what I always say to them is in the bad news the medication is going to take the edge off how you feel it's not going to change your thoughts and and you know and they quickly they actually you know human beings are uh, intelligent creatures you know, they 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 understand that immediately. They say, no, of course it's not going to change my thoughts. So so actually, it's it's like carry on with the medication. That's fine. You know, the work of of looking at your thoughts and observing them and starting to flip them to a neutral thought, um, and the breathing exercises. Um, that's 
you know, that's what they need to do. And basically what I try and do is actually get them to do the exercises, the breathing and the observing the thoughts as often as they need to. And, and some people are doing it every hour in the day. So actually, they, you know, they, they keep having to step back from, from the thoughts because the thoughts keep coming. So it's quite hard work. I mean, it's hard work for them um, to to do it. But if, but actually, once they realise that they have that power and, and they have that ability in their heads to do, in their brains to do that, I mean, you know, they just pick it up and run with it. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the instinct is so strong in all of us not just to survive, but to, to grow and evolve. And part of what I hear that you're doing is, is really empowering people, uh, again, respecting them, seeing them as capable, loving them, and giving them some tools that says, yeah, I, I can do something about this. So even if it's hard work for some of the more acute uh, situations, well, there's motivation to do that. We all have greater motivation when we think there's hope, right? There's mm -hmm. that great um, study about the rats, you know, um, who yes. were put in the water, right? And and the ones that didn't see any hope, they died really quickly. But the ones that had some hope given to them, I won't go into the whole study, but you know, they mm -hmm. could tread water like for infinite hours because mm -hmm. they had hope. And and there's such that strong drive in all of us to to keep living, right? The life mm -hmm. force is powerful. Mm -hmm. um, hundred percent. Yeah. You know, and I love that you make that distinction, which I'll echo here, which is sometimes it's, it's not reasonable, not likely to go from this really negative, horrible to everything's positive, but we can mm. go from here to something neutral. And, mm. you know, that's one of my favorite tools in yoga. And when we use breath and yoga, it's like, it can be in a, in a yoga pose that's really challenging and then the mind will go like oh this is horrible i don't like this i can't do this this is wrong and the yoga team you know, whatever whatever the mind goes into and we might not be able to go to oh this is so great i'm wonderful life is great i'm so strong but we can go to inhale and exhale right mm. we always have that capability it's it's a lot like um you know to take it to the woo, -woo side for a minute abraham hicks Right? And, she, you know, she does, uh, Esther Hicks does such a great job of saying your job is just to, to get to the next higher vibrational thought you can, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. if you can go up a little bit, you're going to keep moving up that ladder. Mm. Yes, yes. And that's it. And and I, I do also say to them, you know, um, I can't fish you out of the well. We talk mm -hmm. about how their thoughts are making them spiral down. And it's like going down in a well, and um, and then and I say, look, you know, I'm I'm here, but I'm standing at the top of the well, hmm. and um, and you know, unfortunately, I'd love to fish you out, but actually, you have to climb up the side of the well, which is similar, um, and you know, I'm standing at the top waiting for you. Hmm. That's beautiful. Well, there's so much more we could talk about, and um, and our time is going to run out soon. Elizabeth, is there anything that that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share, or that that we've missed somehow? You want to bring forward? Um, no, I think I think the only um, the only other thing is about um, one of the ways of getting rid of their negative messages um, that they've had, and they. Um, I sort of describe it as a great big negative scarecrow. Hmm. Um, and that's just quite a useful concept that they've internalized a lot of negative messages about themselves from parents and teachers and grandparents and friends and ex-partners and partners and so forth. And I, I get them to write down their negative messages for me and try and um, write down underneath who who gave that to them that's probably after the first that's in the second or third meeting um so i don't get into that in the first meeting but it's useful to know that um 
you know, to ask them, um, you know, what what their negative thoughts are and and their negative the negative voice in their head, what it's saying to them, um, and 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 try and work out where that came from so that they can get rid of it and give it back because then they're actually starting to see that um, actually they, you know, as a little innocent child, they didn't have any negative messaging. You know, they were just skipping along doing handstands. And and then at some point, and I think it, it gets worse when, when children start school, at some point, you know, they start to think, all the things that they, all the negative things that they think that they are. Um, and so we try and get rid of that as well. Hmm. So powerful. And so, I mean, that's a, a, such an important thing. It's been part of my my own journey as well. Mm. It's something that I work with pretty much all my clients on at some point mm. and really points to this, it's, there's been this great sort of new age debate for forever which is well affirmations do they work mm -hmm. right and and part of what what we've come to understand is well affirmations can be really useful however if underneath them is this negative self-talk negative self-opinion self-recrimination abuse whatever we call it which is there in pretty much everybody anybody that's moved through childhood through schoolhood um, has gotten it to some degree and it's so powerful. It's what, you know, our, uh, our friend, Steve Hardison, he says, if you don't take care of that negative uh, messaging and negative self-belief, you, you can try and create whatever you want. You can affirm whatever you want. However, it's uh, putting frosting on poop, right? <laughs> or as I say, sometimes it's painting pink on rust. And the okay. fundamental thing is we got to get clear on what's the self-imaging and heal that, forgive ourselves. And I love that you bring in and yeah. And who, who where did you get that message? Right. Just mm -hmm. to make it even stand out more clearly. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Okay. So no we are about to finish up. I'm going to, with your permission, ask you the last uh, and big question. Would that be okay? Mm -hmm. Go for okay. it. So this question is completely impossible because it's so big and you've got so much experience and wisdom, which we've gotten a taste of today. And that means you can't go wrong. So the question is this, given all that you know and you've experienced and what you share and help people with, if you were to boil it all down to what is the one thing that will help someone to have their most vibrant life, something they can do or not do, think, not think. What's the, the one piece of advice for how to live one's most vibrant life? So breathe and, and um, create your, your experience in every moment. Wow. That's great. Um, and for me as a uh, practitioner and teacher of breath work as, as a tool and modality that's been so valuable for me. I love mm. that you say that. Um, breathe and create your reality. Super powerful. Mm. Awesome. Elizabeth, well, uh, thank you so much for not just for being here with us, which is a gift and sharing this and helping empower our audience and all of us to be more effective with the people we care about and whatever place they are on, on the spectrum of, you know, dysfunctional to extraordinary, we can all grow and do better. And we all grow and do better with love and with care in the ways you brought it forward. Thank you for the work that you're doing there, like really in the trenches. Um, you know, that, that's incredibly challenging and important work and making a huge difference. So thank you. No worries. Thank you. No, well, thank you for having me on the program. Total pleasure. And y'all, our guests, the audience, whether you're listening live or by rebroadcast, thank you because you tuning in, getting entertained, we hope, and educated, inspired, and empowered, you taking this information and applying it in your life, making your life better, that makes the world a better place. So I so appreciate you investing this time with us and 
Thank you. See you soon. Make your life a masterpiece. Aloha, y'all. Mahalo for tuning in to the Art of Vibrant Living show, y'all. I'm Daniel Aaron, and may you live with great vibrancy.